Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to a world view of history. The date is Wednesday, July 21, uh, 2010. And we're going to talk about the Spartans today. Uh, but uh, without further ado, um, let, I think I've gave, given the date and everything. Without further ado, let us uh, hear from wh what Don Queen has put together for us. So we'll bring on uh, Don Queen. Thank you, Bob, and good evening, everyone. Our book for tonight is The Spartans, the wo world of the warrior heroes of ancient Greece from utopia to crisis and catastrophe. The bard number is DB61824. The author is Paul Cartledge, a 63-year-old professor of Greek history from Cambridge University who has authored numerous books and been a consultant for both the BBC and PBS documentaries. Last month we went back 60 years to study a time recent enough to be within the memory and lifetime of some of us when during a seven-year period from 1950 to 1957 called the age of McCarthyism our rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution were imperiled by one drunken demagogue. In contrast, tonight we're going back 2,500 years to study the 1,000 year period between the Bronze Age and the Roman emperors when the city-state of Sparta existed. This was the same time as Greek civilization expanded throughout the Mediterranean and Black Sea from Georgia to Spain with the creation of a thousand city-states. These mostly independent city-states established many forms of government and divergent schools of philosophy which laid the foundation for Western science and government. Sparta had no philosophers and abhorred change or the cosmopolitan ways of the Athenians. It had become the largest city-state by conquering and enslaving its Mycenaean Greek neighbors, whom it both feared and depended upon, to support its full-time citizen soldiers, which Sparta needed to su suppress the Mycenaeans. Spartan citizens were full-time professional soldiers for life, forbidden to work, and who lived most of their life in the barracks. This militaristic culture did enable Sparta, at some sacrifice, to brutally suppress and exploit its Mycenaean neighbors for hundreds of years and through four Mycenaean wars. Also, the Spartans' emphasis on order, its virtues of frugality, courage, obedience, and discipline became models for many Western governments. Incidentally, Sparta's emphasis on discipline and courage was required in order to maintain its unbeatable phalanx of hoplites. The hoplite used throughout the city-states was a free citizen spearman named for his shield which he carried on his left shoulder and forearm and weighed about 17 and a half pounds uh, the weight of a versa rail 
uh, which extended from his chin to his knees. He was also expected to provide protection to his neighbor to the left. He carried a seven to nine foot spear and a short sword. Maintenance of the phalanx of hoplites required an extreme degree of coordination. They usually marched in eight man deep phalanxes of 50 files. The Spartan phalanx was almost unbeatable until the late Peloponnesian War. Before we hear from our author, let's hear about four minutes from the PBS documentary on Sparta. When we think of ancient Greece, this is the image that most of us have in mind. The Parthenon in Athens. This is where the blueprint for Western civilization received its first draft. Philosophy and science, art and architecture, democracy itself have their roots here. And they're all embodied in the serene lines of one of the most famous buildings in the world. But there's more to the story of ancient Greece than Athens. This is another kind of monument to a very different kind of Greek city. It's the burial mound of 300 warriors from Sparta, who in 480 BC made a heroic last stand in the pass at Thermopylae, resisting a massive invasion force from the Persian Empire. Surrounded and outnumbered by about 40 to 1, they put up a spectacular fight before they were hacked to pieces. They're interred here and honored by this inscription which still echoes down the centuries. Ois deim agelein, lacidaimoniois, otithia kametha toiskemon, remasi pethomenoi. Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here, obedience to their laws, we lie. Unlike Athens, Sparta can't boast of its philosophers and politicians and artists. It's famous for two things. It's frugality, which is where we get our word Spartan from, and it's fighters. In everyday Spartan life, these two were intimately linked. The whole of Spartan society conformed to a strict code of extreme discipline and self-sacrifice. Their aim to create the perfect state protected by perfect warriors. made Sparta a strange place where money was outlawed, equality was enforced and weak children were exterminated. Male homosexuality was compulsory and women enjoyed a degree of social and sexual freedom that was quite simply unheard of in the ancient world.
Its history is one of ruthless militarism, slavery on a massive scale, and a system that can sometimes seem like a premonition of modern-day totalitarian regimes. Sparta was the first Greek city to define the rights and duties of its citizens. And it can also claim, alongside Athens, to have saved the Western world from enslavement by the Persian Empire. Although Spartan hardline ideals don't have the charisma of Athenian culture, they've meant as much to Western civilization as the ideals represented by the Parthenon. Down through the centuries, a huge range of people have been drawn to the Spartans. Anyone with a plan for a utopia in their heads has cherry-picked their ideas. Plato, the French revolutionaries, American pioneers, even Adolf Hitler. They've all turned directly to Sparta for ideas and inspiration. So in a sense, the story of the Spartans is the story of ourselves and how some of the ideas that have molded Western civilization were first tried out in a warrior state on the Greek mainland over two and a half thousand years ago. Now, for a change of pace, Let's hear from our author, Paul Cartledge, participating in a BBC4 panel interview on November 19, 2009, called In Our Time, hosted by Melvin Bragg. In ancient Greece, the city-state of Sparta didn't see any need to build a wall around itself. The Spartans felt confident that they could repel anyone unwise enough to attack them. Sparta's brutal military culture was based on male communal living from the age of seven and the permanent subjugation of its neighbors. It established itself as a ferocious antithesis to the cosmopolitan intellectual energy of Athens. Its name has been a byword for ruthless discipline ever since. Yet Sparta also produced artifacts and poetry and especially songs of great beauty and pioneered a radically egalitarian political system. With me to discuss Sparta, its history and its mythic status are Paul Cartledge, the A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture and a fellow of Clare College, University of Cambridge, Edith Hall, Professor of Classics and Drama at Royal Holloway, University of London, and Angie Hobbs, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Senior Fellow in the Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Warwick. Paul Cartledge, where was Sparta and how did it ar arrive at its very early fame? I can't give you the coordinates off the top of my head, but it is in the southern Peloponnese. Peloponnese is uh, very nearly a peninsula, a large bit of the main bit of Greece. And uh, if you head from Corinth, from the Isthmus of Corinth, you get finally to the valley, hollow Lacedaemon, as it was called as early as Homer. And Lacedaemon, puzzlingly, is both the name for the region and for the city of Sparta. Sparta actually is another name. Sparta's official name was Lacedaemon. And the first impression a traveler gets is of stunning beauty. Because as you look down from an eminence above the valley, you have on your left the Parnon mountain range, and you have on your right the Teigatos mountain range. And Teigatos rises up 2,404 meters 
So it goes up to over 8,000 feet. Panon is slightly lower, but nevertheless, two very long and large mountain chains which Sparta nestles among. Now, the extraordinary thing about the topography of this part of the world is that the Spartans defied it. In other words, at one point in their history, they decided that what they had in the valley of the Eurotas, the river Eurotas, was not enough. They were greedy. And even though that was exceptionally fertile by Greek standards, producing sometimes two crops of cereals in one season, very good for olives, very good for vines, they thought they wanted more. And they went west over this mountain chain, not literally over the top, but round it. And they occupied the region to the west, which we call Messenia. And I'm just concluding on the point that this was the largest Greek city-state by far in terms of its territory. And a quite extraordinary uh, achievement. Can you give us a date there, Paul, please? And right. the largest Greek state, we're talking about Greeks being all over the Mediterranean. We're talking about, say, a thousand cities, and this yeah. is the largest. No, yes. absolutely right. And the date is what? Right. Well, the Greek language is first attested round about 1400 BC. We archaeologists call that the Late Bronze Age. Well, then there's a hiatus, a dark age, and what we call historical Greece gets going in roughly the 9th, 8th century. And we're talking about the foundation of Sparta as a major city in the 8th century, very broadly speaking, between 800 and 700 BC or BCE. It attacks its neighbours, the Messenians, Messenians, who are also Greeks. I Indeed. mean, it's not attacking another sort of people, that sort of thing. And, and, and makes them captives, and they become known as the Helots, or yeah. Helots, or yeah. you pronounce it in Greek, for our delectation <laughs> and delight. Um, and there they are for the rest of Sparta's time, for the rest of Sparta's official time, which goes for hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, they, indeed, the Messenians are not just Greeks, but they actually belong to the same language family of Greeks, sharing the same religious festivals. They're Dorians, and they speak the Doric dialect of Greek. So they are actually, the Spartans, conquering people who are very like themselves. And one reason, therefore, I think that they were as nasty as they were to these people, having conquered them, was precisely because they were so like them. They spoke the same language, they worshipped the same gods. So one way to make them other is to treat them as other. And so ritual humiliation was part of the package. But the extraordinary thing is that they held on to these Messenians as helots for some four centuries. And that was the basis of Sparta's power. And the new land they got was the basis of it could feed itself, it was self-sustaining, which, which, which gave it possibilities and, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, problems as well. But anyway, we'll come to that in a minute. Edith yeah. thought, why did Sparta's mythic version of its own origins affect the way it treated the helots, affect the way it decided to move into this great power position? I think it was fundamental. The um, Spartans' myth of their origins was that uh, their forefathers, many, many, many centuries ago, um, who were the children of the great physical hero Heracles, they all saw themselves as descended from Heracles, the greatest warrior of them all, had been um, expelled, had been driven out, had been exiled by the Messenians and, and other groups in the Peloponnese, and they'd had to come back to reclaim their own. 
So they, um, and every year, they, um, E4s actually, um, who, who we'll go on to, but they actually declared official war on the Messenians because they'd come back and colonised, recolonised their own land. So the emotional status of being a Spartan was one of having taken revenge for having got back what had been taken from you. So that, that, that was actually heightened by the return of the children of Heracles, it's called the return of the Heraclidae to the Peloponnese. Now that's completely different from, say, the Athenian myth, which is that the Athenians are sprung from their own land. They're truly um, indigenous, um, a myth called autoxony, which means sprung from our own soil, your own soil. Um, the Spartan foundation myth was about violent suppression of an enemy. So, can you tell us about the, before we go into detail, the, the, the basic setup, it was ruled by free Spartans. Let's start with, start with that. How equal society was it? Who were these free Spartans? Oh, just get the proportion right, sorry. There were ten times as many helots as there were Spartans mm -hmm. all the way along, at least ten times as many. It was ten to one, and they, the odds went up and up and up, didn't they? But they still were under the thumb. People think it is about one in ten. That's based on both ancient estimates and, 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 and other data. Um, which isn't so different, actually, from the proportion of, 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 of Athenians, uh, citizens and non-Athenians in Athens. It's actually pretty similar. It seems that the economics, yeah, yeah, the economics of it seems to have demanded the sort of labour of nine to the complete absence of labour for, for the tenth, so he could train himself in um, military warfare all day long. You actually buy the leisure of the one off the backs of the labour of, 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 of the other nine. There's, there's a, a peculiar um, contradiction there with, with Sparta because of the extraordinary formal public equality of the free Spartiates. This is, this is, this is the privileged group who get to fight, the men of Sparta. Um, they have an official public status of, of total equality, um, which actually masks the fact there were radical differences in wealth between them. They have a sort of public myth of, of egalitarianism, which is what some left-wing groups in history have found so attractive. To be a free Spartan, you have to have a Spartan father and a Spartan mother, which given the, the, the number of them who were killed in battle after battle after battle and keeping down the helots, made it quite difficult for them at times just to, to be enough. Absolutely it did, and they had constant population crises. Um, one of the ways they got round that was um, by their very peculiar marriage customs, <laughs> which meant that they um, heightened, you weren't really allowed to live with your wife when you got married, as, uh, you were only allowed sort of random visits at night, which meant that the amount of sex that had to be crowned in when you did it must have actually helped the birth rate. Until you were 30, yeah, allegedly. Exactly, I mean, but during the, the high time, wouldn't marry before. they actually controlled sexual access in order to heighten it. Right? Um, and the other one is, of course, eugenics. I mean, sick babies were, were, were regularly... Um, um, that's, that's to go on to another part of the story. But, I mean, there were very specific social mechanisms put in place to try to maximise the number of very strong, healthy children. We might as well finish the sick babies while we're here. Okay. Sure, they no. could be exposed, which to us sounds extraordinarily cruel, but in some cases they might actually be picked up. This is a practice not just of Sparta, by the way, but Athens. And the Athenians knew perfectly well where to go if you wanted a child who wasn't perhaps absolutely either wanted by the parents, they couldn't rear it, or there was something wrong with them. But the Spartans made it an official, centrally directed practice, which is typically exactly. Spartan. Angie Hobbs, there's this figure called Lys Lycurgus. Is that right? 
Lycurgus, probably. Lycurgus will do, okay. Lycurgus. Um, and he's credited with instilling certain virtues into the Spartans. So we're trying to define what a Spartan is. Paul has taken us to where they came from in the deep, deep 1400 BC to this magnificent valley that everyone is going to visit now and then. Over a mountain range they went and conquered the breadbasket of, of the whole of that area, became the biggest city, biggest Greek city around. Uh, and we've begun to talk about the way that they, they manage their affairs. But this is a defining man, if he, if he was a man or just a myth or a collection, what did he do and what did he say that made the difference? Well, whether he existed or not, I would probably uh, think he, he, he didn't. It's strange he's not mentioned in the, the Spartan poet Tertius and so on as we'll come on to. But certainly around the time of the uh, late 7th, early 6th centuries BC, we get a lot of very important changes in the way the Spartan constitution is set up and the way the Spartans educated themselves. And these, this sort of package of reforms uh, has been attributed uh, to this semi-mythical character called Lycurgus. So in terms of the, the upbringing, which is meant to instill certain virtues, at the age of seven, as we've, as we've said, uh, the young male uh, Spartans were taken away from home. Um, they were away from home forever after that they never came back no it, it, even no even worse than boarding school that and they they went through what was known as the agoge which is this extremely uh, tough discipline both mentally and physically um, to designed to instill the military virtues in them so above all they are being trained to be courageous and strong in both body and mind and then the other great Spartan virtues of self-discipline and austerity um, they come come in to feed this military package. So everything is geared to creating this, this warrior class. Can you give us some detail? You say it's extremely strict and very disciplined, mean very emphatic. What did they make these boys, then adolescents and young men, do? Okay, well, until the age of 18, uh, so they're going through uh, very rigorous military training, gymnastics, food deprivation, for instance. They have to go on, they have periods and they have to go and forage for their own food. Um, so, it, it just the idea is to develop not just the military skills, but the kind of cunning and resourcefulness that is going to be needed to fight on campaign. And then at 18, it gets even more sinister, that uh, the a select few of these Spartan youths are selected for what uh, they undergo something called the Cryptea, when they're sort of sent off into the countryside with just a knife to forage for themselves for a fairly extended period of time. And one of the things that they're meant to do in this period, this period of kind of I don't know, secret sort of service operations, really. It's like an SOE sort of band, is to kill helots, to keep the helot numbers down. They are actually, that is actually part of what they're meant to do, is, is to, part of the subjugation of the helots is a sort of revolting ritual culling of them. Now, behind this, though, there was also a political system that was very different from other systems. Can you, the three of you, can we get through that quite briskly? Okay, well, we've got um, 
we've got four sort of uh, divisions of power, as it were. We have two uh, hereditary kings from two different royal families. Who, exactly, uh, exactly. But as Edith has said, they both saw themselves as descendants of, of Heracles. And they have increasingly fewer powers as time goes on. They always remain uh, generals on campaign. Uh, they always retain some religious powers. They're, they're priests as well as kings. And they retain some limited judicial powers connected with inheritance and heiresses. Then there's the Gerousia, the, the Senate, a body of 28 men over 60, mainly from aristocratic backgrounds, plus the two kings, so making 30 in all, and they act uh, preparing the uh, motions for the assembly, and they also act as a kind of supreme court, a supreme judicial court. Thirdly, uh, we've got the ephors, five annually elected overseers who can come from all class backgrounds. And again, they have enormous amount of executive power and judicial power. And finally, there's the damos, the, what the people were called. And they can vote on stuff that's been prepared for them. This by is the free Spartans. Exactly, yeah, the free, free Spartan, Spartan males. Yeah. Yes, so pretty, a pretty small uh, bunch compared to the population as a whole. But even their votes, it looks as if they could be overturned by the Gerousia, the Senate, if the Senate didn't like the result. Mm. It's quite like the idea of a gerontocracy. <laughs> I think it is. Well, can you tell us how this, what evidence do we have of how this worked in practice? The, um, well, the, uh, the question of evidence with, 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 with classical Sparta is in incredibly fraught, but it does seem as though, to me, that, that the, if, if, you, if we went sort of back to ancient Sparta, one of the most startling things would be the extraordinary ability of, of the elder Spartans to keep the younger generations um, obedient to them, uh, especially the young men, the vigorous young men of, of under 30. Now, that's the case that old age was respected in, 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 in most ancient Greek societies, but you know, we've actually found an inscription on, 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 on a stone bench in Sparta that says, get up and make way for your elders, like we have, have on the buses. And they have all sorts of... No, we of don't have it on the buses. Not <laughs> on the <seat. laughs> I'm so sorry, I have it on the seats, seats of, the, of the buses. The, um, there's a poet. We have two actual Spartan voices in poetry. One of them, We only have two real Spartans talk to us at all in the historical record, and they're both poets. And one of the poem, poets is Tertius, and he composes the songs with which the young men were trained for military discipline. They had to sing them as they did drill. And these are highly militaristic songs. And in one of them, yeah, there's this image of the most shameful thing is to let an elder die in front of you on the battlefield the with the white beard. And there's this picture of the tragic old man dying when you should be out there dying instead. And this is one of the songs they had to learn, was as they saw, they saw an old man, they went in and sacrificed. And, well, and it's one of the things that Aristotle's going to criticise the yeah. Spartan constitution for too much power in the hands of, of old men when, when mental powers are failing. We should remember that well Aristotle as well. died in his early 60s, so <laughs> he has a bit of a vested interest He was here. exactly my age when he can died. We, can, we back, can we come back to the Anno Mouton, please? Uh, how <laughs> effective was this and how different was this constitution? Well, it was radically different from anything else, and one reason we can say that for sure is that the Greeks themselves, including Aristotle, couldn't work out what it was, because by by the time people thought politically, theoretically, about what a constitution was, in Greek, a polytire, they had two main kinds, either a democracy, rule of the demos in some sense, or an oligarchy. There were very few kingships around, and the only alternative to a version of oligarchy or democracy was some of each, and so a mixed constitution. And the Spartans themselves 
if pressed, I think, would have had trouble saying whether they had a monarchy, a kingship, yeah. because the two kings were very important. Or was it a gerontocracy, an oligarchy of the Gerousia? Or was it a democracy because the Ephors had great power and they came from the whole people and the whole people decided, e.g., do we go to war, do we not go to war? I have my own view, but in pure theoretical terms, it's extremely difficult. But try to get a fix in at the time. Did other cities, there are a thousand cities, it's a national yeah. number, there are always a thousand or something, the other number, <laughs> 984, but never mind, a thousand cities. And are they looking to Sparta and say, they are different. This is, they're not only the biggest and the most powerful and military the most effective for about 400 years. They're different. Was it recognized at the time that this was a different Absolutely. place? These I mean, were a different lot of people. Most of our, as Edith says, our evidence is extremely poor in general. But most of it is filtered through or directly from Athens. And Athens and Sparta fight it out from the late 5th century BC onwards, the famous Peloponnesian War. And occasionally they come together against a common enemy, but typically our evidence is Athenocentric and either biased for, because Athenians who write actually like some features of Sparta, e.g. a few people having great influence, and then others are very against because they're Democrats and they hate the notion that the people actually doesn't have initiative. You what was really admired was the good order. I mean, I think there are two virtues we haven't mentioned that we really have to. And one is what was called eunomia, which means good order. And people who liked orderly cities where everybody didn't get anarchic and noisy, you know, loved Sparta. And the other is obedience. And all the um, ancient poetry is all about inculcating obedience. Obedience is something to be proud of. Rebellion is something that will mean that you cannot be a Spartiate anymore. And I'm sure we'll get back to that with, 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 with the, the way that the Spartans were talked about in the 20th century. Can we stay here for a moment? The, you, you, you mentioned the poet, the, the poet, and was, um, in the songs of Titaeus, yeah. what do his poems about young Spartan men reveal? And can you give us some sense, even sound of them? Well, they, um, they, uh, they're marching songs, so if you imagine... Um, no, they're not sound they're, they're elegiacs. They're both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if you, um, um, imagine certain kinds of songs sung by American GIs while they're training, yeah? They're sound, sung to pipe and drum, they're, you do your military drill by them, you, they're called embateria, which actually means marching songs, that actually means them, and Tertius published at least four, and possibly published, composed four or five of these, and they really are in the we voice, they're in the we voice, we are going to war, it is the most disgraceful thing um, not to die beside your shield, the Messenians, we have conquered the Messenians, and they now have to live like poor asses and give us more than half of their money, it actually says that, we love looking at blood. The man who doesn't look at blood is a wimp. Um, and then there's a lot of things like with shield, with spear, crest by... It is a fine thing for a brave man to die when he's fallen among the front ranks while fighting for his homeland. Let us fight with spirit for this land and let us die for our children, no longer sparing our lives. Make the spirit in your heart strong and valiant and do not be in love with life when you are a fighting man. Spacious Massini, good to plow, good to plant. 
For 19 years, our fathers' fathers fought unceasingly over it, displaying steadfast courage in their hearts. And in the 20th year, the enemy fled from their home, abandoning their rich farmlands. Come on, you young men! Stand fast at one another's side and fight, and do not start shameful flight or panic. Sergius had some typically helpful advice. Those who dare to stand fast at one another's side and to advance towards the front ranks in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, they die in smaller numbers, and they keep the troops behind safe. That's some poet. I don't think that's a road that Robert Frost ever took. Now, I want to thank Robert Acosta and Rick Harmon for their technical assistance. And let's open up the mics and see what you thought about this book. Well, what did you think about the book? So, um, okay, guys, those who really got into reading this, any comments? Or any questions? I didn't read the book, but I'll say one thing. Those people thought very, very differently in those days. Uh, the society is totally different than what I would have pictured, in, even in ancient Greece. You know, it is amazing because people actually from other cities had their sons sent to the Agora at age seven. It, if they were aristocratic and had influence, it was tried to get it. It was like getting into an English boarding school who obviously copied it after them and uh, Thomas More uh, copied the uh, based his utopia he wrote a thing on utopia in the 16th century and it was based on Sparta they I kind of idealized it. but you you had a moral dichotomy between the Athenians who believed in democracy the city-state and Sparta correct and it's of course I guess Sparta won, but then lost. They had to surrender as well. Back in which moral structure prevailed? I guess you know the Bob. If you remember we, that book we read, it was it courtesans and fish cakes. It was on Bookshare, and uh, it was a terrible scanning job. But the uh, uh, those Athenians weren't the nicest in the world either. No, they weren't. I do remember that book. They were not. There wasn't nobility. I used to think the Athenians were pretty noble, you know, but then, no, they weren't uh, nice people either. You know, Don, I almost think that um, it would have been better if we'd heard what we heard tonight in the conversations uh, before we read the book. I had a problem. There were so many names and so many people, you know, just all ran together to me. And even though you, I was able to pull out certain facts about these people, um, I was awfully glad I didn't have to end up taking a test on this thing because I sure wouldn't have been able to. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading Alexander the Great because it's going to be one person, but this just went all over the place in my mind. Not that I didn't like the book, I just didn't follow it very well. Yeah, I have to agree with Jill. I pretty much, with the, I was, I struggled with all the names and then I, Kind of get them blurred with the uh, with the place names and the people names and 
I just kind of lose track of uh, it kind of reminds me of a book like some books that I read it seems like I need a primer to or a book to explain the book I completely agree um, this was a hard book not because I thought the story was difficult but just sort of the way it was, it was written um, I was initially pretty excited about reading the book because um, we'd actually, I think we'd heard the, um, the, the documentary on PBS. And when I read in the um, introduction that the author had contributed to that, I was very excited. But it was really difficult. I, I've got to confess, I didn't even finish the book because I, I just got so frustrated with all of the names and just the style of the writing, it felt like the author kept interrupting um, the flow of the thoughts or descriptions, and I really wanted like a coherent story, but I kept getting bits and pieces all the time. Boring. Um, I think, you know, and I was a history major in college, and if I'd had to read this book in, his, in, in college, I would have been in my advisor's office changing majors. Um, and it's not, not Don's fault, but I just think the book, you know how you, yeah, yeah, okay, let me just give you the example of the last book we read last month had personality. This had absolutely no personality to it whatsoever. And um, it, it, just, it was just so dry and so erudite and so acu academic that it was just, um, you know, maybe way above what we're used to. Not so much way above us, but way above what we're used to. Uh, I needed more narrative or more storytelling is the best way I can explain it. And it was, it's just... You know, I it's, it just wasn't there. I haven't finished reading the book. And I'm I'm going to go back and read a little bit more, but uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through this one. Can I say one more thing? Um, I do have to say that my sixth grade teacher, Helen Landfrey, did an excellent job with us talking about Sparta and parts of this book took me back to my sixth grade, uh, you know, history class when we did the whole unit on Greece. And, um, you know, she was very, very thorough in her coverage of the militaristic and the physical, the mainly the physical, athletic uh, parts of, of, of how the people from Sparta were so different from the people from Athens. Yeah, that that is the main thing, and it's just kind of funny that people talk about Athens so much uh, and idealize it. And I, I had a teacher, and we took philosophy, and he just idealized them, like, kind of like John Milton holding the olives from Athens. He was dreaming of being in ancient Greece. And uh, this book is was a hard one. I, if I'd have known it was so hard, I don't know if I'd have uh, taken it. They call it a pre college primer and there was some criticisms in the uh, thing so uh, it, it was a tough book I found the uh, certain chapters I reread parts of it uh, were 
better on the second read. The introduction was quite good. It got a little long, but the last chapter, I've never been able to, I've tried three times to read it. It's a little tough. I thought it was interesting that the women had so much influence over the men, but the men were in a separate barracks all the time, except, you know, on the dictates of their of the authorities. I wonder when the men were around to, for the women to have influence on them. Uh, well, you know, the um, if you didn't get what they were saying, if you didn't get married, you were publicly berated and they 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 give you a bad time when you walk through town and yell at you and uh, uh, criticize you so uh, th this was a thing I just kind of I can see where they never got their, their population problems so because uh, they're they're in the bar barracks with their and they're practicing homosexuality I, I don't know what they thought was going yeah but he made such a point of telling us that the women this this was a really exceptional culture because the women really did have strong influence over the men. Remember the woman talking about um, that she that it was because they raised men. Um, I, I I couldn't see when this took place. Well, what happened uh, if some couple had just girls? You know, were they ridiculed for that too? That's a good question. I've kind of been wondering. Do the girls go away from home as well, or do they stay, you know, with their mother, or what goes on there, too? I think the redeeming thing there is that women did inherit property, so it isn't like if you were in Athens or in Victorian England, if you didn't, uh, you didn't inherit, you know, and if you, your daughter, you, they had to find a place for you, you know, that, that was put women in a very bad I, you know what my thought was with, through the whole book was, can you imagine sitting there writing all of this? Well, he's kind of a one-subject guy, and that's what he knows. He, he's all over the BBC and and things, but I couldn't get much on him from uh, on this book because uh, the uh, BBC won't let me into the through their archives, because I'm not from Britain, <laughs> but uh, uh, I guess I don't pay taxes on the radio, but um, uh, he, he is the, the expert on it, I guess. And I think if anybody has a chance to see the PBS documentary, that that's something that's really worth watching, because it actually does tell a story, and it does... Um, present sort of Sparta and the society and everything really, really well. It, it's, it's a really well done um, uh, show to, to watch. If you send, if you're interested, I do have the whole thing recorded. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's a, a 180 minute things so it, it take a little bit of time to do on send space but if you're interested send me an email from the thing and I'll I'll send it to you they run it fairly regularly on the history channel too and they added commercials so it's a 2 hour show on there it's it's long <laughs> well did uh, was there any parts of the book or anybody like the the book well there are other books I like better I really didn't read all of the book to be honest with you but uh I don't know it just was kind of hard to to stick with it. Uh, maybe if it had been, you know, 
personalized a little bit more. It might, now, Sparta, where exactly was that located? I mean, I, I te- you know, we're, Athens, I know, is still in Greece, but uh, Sparta's, you know, would that have been in Greece or in Asia Minor or just where would... And, uh, well, my understanding, and I've forgotten what the which what was on the others on the west side of the Greek peninsula, but Greek um, it's a long narrow peninsula, and as you get down part way down is Athens, and uh, that was a city state with the walls around it and a, a very long walls into Epirus, which was a harbor, so they they were walled in just like an island, and they were a sea power, and then you go down to Corinth. And it was narrow enough that they used to drag their boats across it. I don't know if it was a mile or two, but it was, it was narrow enough, and they eventually built a canal. I think the Romans did. But then you go down to, to uh, the lower part of the peninsula, and Greece is very mountainous. 70% of it isn't arable, they say. And so that's why the, the Greeks started forming all these colonies all over the Mediterranean, because they didn't have enough... Sparta, of course, conquered its own. It had the most arable land there. It had uh, you could get two crops of grain, as they said, off of it, and they and it they they were basically a land-based uh, city-state. The Aegean Sea was between them and Asia Minor. I, I forgot to put that. And there was all your islands like Crete and Salmos and so on that they talk about that. And then on the other side, you had the Adriatic, at least, and uh, Italy and so on, which are also peninsulas. Do you all think that um, a society like Sparta with its um, strict discipline and obedience, do you think a society like that is doomed to fail or do you think there's um, that's not necessarily true? Because I almost wonder that I tend to think greed is kind of a natural human thing and that's why a lot of communes don't succeed. And I just wondered if a society like Sparta would ever have a chance in any period of history for lasting any much longer than what it did, which should be, you know, uh, a few generations, but probably not longer than that. I think it's a yes or no. Uh, yes and no, actually. Uh, they lasted several hundred years because of their status, their static state, where Greek uh, Athens was going through all these conniptions with the 30 tyrants. Of course, Sparta put them in there and, and the de- democracy and, and things. And... Uh, but there were so many of these city-states that they, they survived. And, but Sparta never changed, but it died because of its xenophobia and its, its refusal to change, I think. It, 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 it eventually lost, especially at, they had that earthquake in, thir, three, thir, was it 370? They had that big earthquake, and then the, uh, that was the fourth time the uh, Helots rebelled. There was four, four wars that they had, so... Uh, they, they, they were eventually going to die out, I think. Well, all you have to do is look at the communist, uh, you know, revolution of, of 1917 and look at where, what happened to Russia in 1989. That's kind of what I was thinking of Russia in the 80s. Well, Russia caved in upon herself, you know, that the idea that their concept of government uh, it just fell apart. But in spite of the world the way it is today, they were in some ways rather isolated and certainly militaristic. And it it just seems like it's hard to maintain that. And I think what Don said about xenophobia probably comes into it too. The more isolated you are, 
your population is going to suffer and you're going to stagnate in some ways. And I know one of them said there, I don't know if it was uh, Mr. Cartlidge, Professor Cartlidge, but they had a good part of the world, and did they not? Fertile lands and everything. Uh, but it was um, it was a it was a rough area, but they they had the fertile lands, and they still they wanted more, and uh, there you go. It's, it's amazing they they way they kept the helots that suppressed for so long, though. Um, in fact, uh, well, well, I won't, won't go into that, but uh, they uh, really uh, were brutal. I mean, they they sent they'd send these guys out with their little knives to kill. Helots, or if they got a little troublesome, so it must have been a real reign of terror they had. Um, I've been think. I was thinking before we started. Uh, we our next book is with the same author, and, and uh, it, it's about one man, but it isn't that much difference. It, unless somebody's has anybody started reading it yet? If not, I'd say well, let's jump ahead to Ju Ju Julius, the assassination of Julius Caesar. I think it's a. Uh, it might be a more interesting book, a little less uh, uh, demanding. Oh, I'd vote for that one. I mean, you can always come back to him. You know, and I, I certainly didn't start reading it. I don't know about the rest of you, you guys, but I, I have not. But Julius Caesar would be interesting. I second the vote. I third it. I fourth it. But what, what's the name of the what, – what are we doing? Because I got kicked out again here, so uh, – I, I'll just give it to you. It's five, It's a DB five seven three two three, and it's seven hours, uh, um, and it's about thirteen minutes. It was written in two thousand three. It, it's uh, by Michael Parentis, P A R E N T I, Parenti. Yeah, P A R E N T I, and uh, and I think it's the People's Search for the Past. He's a uh, He's kind of a liberal guy, but uh, I think it's an idea that uh, all the uh, previous historians were mostly upper class types like uh, Gibbon and those, and they always made the uh, 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 devil out of uh, Julius Caesar, Caesar, and he caused the uh, end of the republic, and it wasn't that at all. They, 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 uh, they assassinated him because he was giving too much power to the people. So... That's the theory of the book. It's a new interpretation, so it should make for a pretty interesting read. But doesn't Mark Anthony say that in his uh, Friends, Romans, Countrymen? All, all these walks, all these things are given to you, the people, you know, and all that stuff. So maybe this guy's get more on the ball than uh, on this one. I don't know. Hey, he was giving a lot of stuff to the people, and that's what that's what got the Senate mad at him. And, uh, and uh, so the... Um, uh, it, it makes for a very good, uh, I, I think it'll make a little easier read than this other one was. It's hard to get anything on real ancient history, is what I was trying to do, which is, is, is not, doesn't read like a textbook. What's the name of it again? The Assassination of Julius Caesar by Michael Parenti, P-A-R-E-N-T-I, DB57323. I thought it was only hot in Phoenix. Does that help you not have to pay the electric bill either? Um, unfortunately, it doesn't, but at least it puts it off for a little while. <laughs> well, very good, Don, and we'll be ready uh, in August. Uh, it would be the uh, the 18th, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's the August the 18th, and I got the title, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, The People's History of Ancient Rome. That was a second line I couldn't seem to locate, and uh, 
I'll look forward to seeing you then. Okay, and thank you, Rob, for recording and sh shoot it over to me, and we'll uh, get it ready here. So uh, thank you, everybody. I'm out of here.